Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History of Europe, Key Battles, the Battle of Mohach of 1526 between the Ottoman Turks and a Christian alliance, part one of two. In the early 1500s, the rulers of Europe were, on the whole, more confident than they had ever been. There were many reasons, among them conquests and distant lands overseas, a flourishing economy and great leaps in military technology. Yet there was one dark shadow that hung over the continent, the Ottoman Turks. In eyes of most Christians, the Turks were a nation of brutal and bloodthirsty barbarians who threatened the very existence of Christendom. Ever since the days of the Battle of Manzika in 1071, Europeans had been aware of the danger of the Turks. At first, it seemed a peripheral problem, only directly affecting Byzantium and the eastern Mediterranean. But as the Turks gained victory after victory, the threat came ever closer and ever more real to Central and Western Europe. Through centuries of warfare and skillfully dividing their enemies, they had conquered piece by piece much of the Balkans and the Byzantine Empire. In 1396, they inflicted a crippling blow on the Kingdom of Serbia at the Battle of Kosovo and forced the Serbs to accept them as their overlords. Then at the Battle of Nicopolis in 1396, Sultan Bayezid I crushed a crusading army sent to aid the beleaguered Kingdom of Hungary and followed up his victory by annexing the whole of Bulgaria. The biggest breakthrough for the Turks was the fall of Constantinople in 1453, which henceforth became the capital city of the Ottoman Empire. The fall of Constantinople sent shockwaves throughout Christendom. The great strategic position of the city gave the Ottomans control over the eastern Mediterranean and gave them a launch pad to make further offensives. Mehmet the Conqueror, having brought an end to the Byzantine Empire at a young age, went on to achieve one victory after another. He conquered the Genoese colonies on the Black Sea, the Greek Duchy of Athens, most of the Peloponnese and the last Byzantine enclaves of Anatolia. He turned Wallachia, today southern Romania, into a vassal state. 
Next, he forced the Kingdom of Bosnia and the Duchy of Herzegovina under Turkish rule, resulting in a wave of conversion to Islam among the native populations. At the same time, Sultan Mehmet became embroiled in a war with Venice over the latter's colonies in Greece. After many years of warfare, the Venetians were forced to relinquish a number of important locations, both islands in the Mediterranean and ports along the Adriatic coast. The threat to Venice was made greater since the Turks, from their newly acquired bases in Bosnia, had been able to make inroads into Venetian home territories, exposing not only their vulnerability, but also that of the whole Italian peninsula. The danger was brought home to the Italians in July 1480, when the city of Otranto on the heel of Italy was attacked and captured by the Turks. The Ottomans executed 800 male prisoners who refused to convert to Islam and enslaved the local women and children. Their commander, realising there was not enough plunder in the area to sustain his army, retired across the Adriatic in the winter. The next year he intended to return, but the plans were changed when Sultan Mehmet II died in May 1481. For the next 30 years, Christendom had a respite, as Mehmet's successor was less interested in conquest in Europe. The regions which bordered the Ottoman Empire, especially Italy and the Kingdom of Hungary, were saved, at least the time being, but it was clear that the Ottomans were likely to return someday. What was it that enabled the Ottomans to expand so rapidly? Some reasons were a well-organised military machine, superior tactics, use of up-to-date military technology, and the building of an effective administration in conquered lands. Also important was that each soldier had direct allegiance to the Sultan and to central government instead of working as mercenaries or for local barons. Another reason for their success was their religious motivation. From the beginning, Ottoman rulers adopted the term of Ghazi, meaning attacks on infidels, to describe and justify their conquests. However, they were equally effective fighters against fellow Muslims, and for that matter, fellow Turks. Also, Christians in conquered lands retained many rights, or they were treated as second-class citizens. Thanks to their relative toleration, the Ottomans were able to integrate a wide variety of people into their empire without provoking too many rebellions. Indeed, Ottoman military forces comprised not just Sunni Muslims, but Christians and Jews as well. Also important was the acceptance of different Islamic cults. While it would be wrong to describe this as toleration in the modern sense, the Ottomans were pragmatic and stressed political harmony over religious doctrine. One practice feared by Christians when it was practiced in the Balkans was the Devshirme. Translated as something like the Collecting, this is when the Ottoman Empire sent military officers to take groups of boys, aged 8 to 18, from their families in order that they be raised to serve the state. Those chosen were sent to Constantinople, made to convert to Islam, and then, according to their physique, intelligence or other qualities, sent off to either a palace school, the royal gardens, or, for the majority, a farm in Anatolia. A small number of them were introduced into an elite military unit known as the Janissaries, who were famed as one of the most disciplined, most professional and most brutal fighting forces in the world. One disadvantage of the Ottoman military is that it took a long time to train the elite troops, so that it could not be quickly replaced if required.
The Europeans, in the meanwhile, were quickly developing the use of muskets and pikes, which allowed masses of men to be trained in battle in a relatively short period of time. From 1503 until 1521, the Ottomans paid little attention to Europe, partly because they faced a new threat from the east in the form of the Safavid dynasty of Persia. In less than ten years, from 1501 to 1510, the Safavids managed to conquer not only most of Mesopotamia and the whole of modern Iran, but also Azerbaijan and a number of territories around the Caspian Sea. The founder of the Safavid dynasty, Ismail I, was Shah from 1501 to 1524. His rule is one of the most important in the history of Iran for two reasons. Firstly, before his accession, the area of Monday Iran had been controlled by a series of Arab caliphs, Turkish sultans and Mongol khans. It was only under his family that the majority of Iran came under Iranian rule. The Safavid dynasty would go on to stay in power for over two centuries, and at its height was amongst the most powerful empire of its time. Secondly, Ismail proclaimed Shia Islam as the official religion of the newly formed state. This extreme step distinguished the growing Safavid state from its strong Sunni neighbour, the Ottoman Empire to the west and the Uzbek Confederation to the east. Thus, the clash between the Ottomans and the Safavids was partly based on competition for land and resources, but was intensified by their different religious beliefs. Sultan Bayezid II at first approached the problem cautiously, trying to close his eastern borders to sheer missionaries, and otherwise limited himself to sending an army of observers to the frontiers, trying to avoid direct conflict with his powerful new neighbour. Things came to a head in 1511, when the Safavid-sponsored rebellion erupted in eastern Anatolia. When an Ottoman army sent to put down the rebellion was defeated, Bayezid and his regime came under intense pressure. His son, Selim, having from the beginning advocated strong measures against Ismail, rose in revolt. With the support of the Janissaries, he forced his father to abdicate in his favour on the 24th of May 1512 and took control for himself of the empire. Bayezid II's reign, despite its sad ending and lack of conquests compared to his father, Mehmet II, marked a period of great economic growth and improved administration within the Ottoman Empire. In his reign, the Ottomans also began to adopt new military technology, such as small field guns, and built a fleet that rivalled that of Venice. The new sultan, Selim I, immediately showed why he would earn himself the nickname of The Grim. He had his brothers killed, executed thousands of the followers of Ismail, and then set about launching an attack on Persia, achieving a significant victory at the Battle of Kaladiran in August 1514. In 1516, Selim amassed a major invasion force, but surprisingly directed it not against Persia, but southwards through Syria and into Egypt. In a stunning campaign, starting in August 1516, Selim invaded the land of the Mamluks, who had controlled Egypt since 1250, nearly 300 years previously. The Mamluks, who relied on their mobile cavalry archers, were no match for the cannons and muskets of the Ottomans, and suffered a heavy defeat just outside Cairo on the 23rd of January 1517. 
The Mamluk Sultan, Tuman Bey, fled across the Nile, but was apprehended and brought before Selim on the 31st of March. He was killed and his body displayed in public at one of the gates of the city for all to see, and the centuries-old Mamluk dynasty was consigned to history. Selim's victory over the Mamluks gave him control over not just Syria and Egypt, but also the Arabian Peninsula. As guardian of the holy places of Mecca and Medina, he became the most preeminent Islamic ruler of his time, and the guarantor of the pilgrimage routes used by the Muslim faithful. The conquest of the Mamluks also opened up new opportunities for Ottoman expansion. With a route to the Red Sea, Selim had gained access to the Indian Ocean, beginning a new era of rivalry with the Portuguese for control of the highly lucrative spice trade. With new money streaming into the state coffers, the Ottomans could plan further conquests. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. On hearing the news of the fall of Cairo, the Europeans were concerned where Salim would turn his aggression next. Pope Leo X appealed to leaders of Christendom to end their quarrels and to unite in the face of their powerful and seemingly ever-expanding neighbour. A flurry of diplomatic activity followed, but not for the first or last time the papacy was disappointed by the lukewarm reaction. Venice dared not risk to get involved, having renewed peace with the Ottomans in 1513. Probably the greatest hindrance to the proposed crusade, however, was the ongoing power struggle between the continent's two most powerful rulers, Francis I of France and Emperor Charles V. The Christian territory most concerned about Ottoman expansion was its direct neighbour, the Kingdom of Hungary. Hungary and the Ottoman Empire had been rivals for power in the Balkans ever since the Turks arrived in Europe in the late 1300s, and even more so since the fall of Constantinople in 1453. Had not Hungary been a powerful kingdom with energetic leaders, the Ottomans may well have advanced more quickly into the centre of Europe, but unfortunately that was about to change. The man most credited with holding back the Ottoman tide of the 1450s was a Hungarian baron called Jun Hunyadi. Known as one of the greatest military commanders of his time, his greatest triumph was successfully fending off the Ottoman siege of Belgrade in 1456. Shortly after, however, Hunyadi died of an epidemic that broke out in the war camp. 
Such was John Hunyadi's popularity that after the death of the Hungarian king, Vladislav V, in 1457, without heir, his son, known as Matthias Kovinas, was enthusiastically elected king by the Hungarian nobility. Matthias proved himself a worthy successor to his great father, ruling his kingdom well. During the first years of his reign, the Ottomans gained control of neighbouring Bosnia and Herzegovina. In 1464, Matthias counter-attacked and seized fortresses in Bosnia, but without substantial aid from other Christian powers, was unable to keep up the military initiative. Instead, he turned his attention to trying to gain control of Bohemia. In the late 1470s, trouble flared with the Ottomans again. Matthias sent reinforcements to Stephen the Great, Prince of Moldavia, enabling him to repel a series of Ottoman invasions. Matthias Covinus is perhaps best known for his embrace of the Renaissance trends from Italy and patronage of the arts and science. His royal library, the Biblioteca Corviniana, was one of the largest collections of books in Europe. Among his other achievements was the establishment of a professional army, the so-called Black Army of Hungary, improvements to the justice system and the centralisation of power. Matthias had the respect of the Hungarian nobility and so was able to keep under control the various factions at court. However, despite having three wives, Matthias never had any legitimate children. And so, as soon as he died, a power struggle broke out for control of the throne. Matthias did his best to pass his kingdom on to his illegitimate son, John Cavinus, but various other pretenders put forward their own claims, among them the future emperor Maximilian of Habsburg. The Hungarian nobility made common cause in ensuring that Matthias's successor would be a weak ruler whom they could control. This ruled out both Maximilian and also John Cavinus, who would have continued his father's policies. Instead they chose Vladislav Jagerion, a co-ruler of Bohemia, who was crowned Vladislav II of Hungary in September 1490. Maximilian, outraged by the breaking of an earlier promise that he would be elected, at once invaded Hungary and occupied much of the western part of the country. After some negotiations, he was persuaded to withdraw by the promise of both the Hungarian and Bohemian crowns if Vladislav died childless. John of Covinas, for his part, was granted the title of King of Bosnia, but died fighting the Turks in 1504. Vladislav II quickly acquired the nickname of Dobja, the Polish for OK, or Yes or Right, for his inclination to agree to any proposal put to him. This suited the barons and nobility very well, but for the crown it was disastrous, as his privilege and revenues rapidly shrank. Among the new policies resolved by the Council of Nobles, or Diet, was that half of the money raised for national defence should be diverted to a group of 40 named barons, who then used the money to raise their own private armies. Chief among the nobles was a general by the name of Stephen Zapolia. Zapolia was the practically autonomous governor, the so-called Voivode of Transylvania, and would be an important figure in the story. The Crown's military strength was weakened further by the dissolution of the so-called Black Army, which Matthias Covinas had established and knew so effectively. The nobility accrued further powers by devising new laws. They decreed that any future laws could only be made with the consent of both the king and people, which in practice meant the nobles. 
the nobility became exempted from various taxes and obligations, and gained increased rights to resist the king should he try to interfere with their privileges. Non-nobles, meanwhile, had various privileges stripped away, such as rights of land ownership and rights to hunt. At the same time, new taxes were imposed on livestock and landlords demanded more hours of labour from their workforce. Conditions for the common rural folk therefore declined rapidly, leading to popular discontent, which in 1514 triggered the outbreak of a massive peasant revolt. The events leading up to the revolt began with the death of Pope Julius II in February 1513. Among the contenders to replace him on the papal throne was a Hungarian archbishop by the name of Thomas Bakoc. Bakoc was one of the most powerful individuals in Hungary and responsible for its foreign policy. In Rome he was well respected and was nearly elected pope, but lost out in the end to Leo X. As consolation, Leo appointed Bakoc as papal legate in all of East Central Europe, with the responsibility of organising a new crusade against the Ottomans. The Hungarian nobles had no interest in a crusade, but the response among the peasantry was very enthusiastic, eager as they were to escape the awful conditions of their villages. Over 40,000 rallied to the banner outside the city of Pest, who were put by Bakoc under the leadership of a soldier from the lesser nobility by the name of George Dorsha. As Dorsha headed south at the head of a rapidly growing peasant army, Bakoc got cold feet and, responding to the concerns of the nobility, called off the crusade and ordered the peasants back to their villages. The peasants had finally had enough, downtrodden for years and furious at the landlords for not joining them to fight the infidels. A violent rebellion broke out with Dorsha at its head. Burning and looting as it went, his army reached south-east Hungary, where it laid siege to the fortress of Temesvar. There they were met by a hastily assembled army of nobles under John Zaporia, son of the early-mentioned Stephen Zaporia, who quickly prevailed over the disorganised peasant army. The harsh response against the leaders of the revolt sent a powerful message to the peasants. One rebel leader was beheaded, while more inventive punishments were devised for the others. First they were thrown into prison, where they were starved for a fortnight. Then they were paraded in front of a large assembly of nobles, where they were tortured. George Dorsha was singled out for special treatment. He was forced to sit on a mock iron throne, which had been heated until it was red-hot. A mock iron crown, also red-hot, was then thrust on his head, and a red-hot sceptre put in his hand. Other leading supporters were forced to eat his roasting flesh before they too were further tortured and then executed. New laws imposed upon the peasantry were equally as malevolent. Their rights and migration were further restricted, and extra taxes imposed as compensation for the damage wrought by the rebellion. The cost of the rebellion was appalling, not just in terms of lives or property lost, but in legacy of bitterness between the peasants and the masters, at a time when they should have united in the face of the ever-present threat of a Turkish invasion. The war on the border of Hungary and the Ottoman Empire continued on and off, despite a series of truces, and Sultan Selim's preoccupation to the expansion of his empire elsewhere. 
John Zapolia, in particular, led raids into Bulgaria and Serbia, but they failed to significantly weaken the Ottoman hold on the Balkans. The Turks were aware of the steady deterioration of the Hungarian border defences, brought about by general neglect and lack of resources. The situation was not improved by the death of Vladislav II in 1516, and the succession by his ten-year-old son, Louis II. Before Vladislav died, he held a meeting in 1515 with Maximilian Habsburg and King Sigismund I of Poland, which in many respects determined the future of Central Europe. Sigismund promised to support Habsburg ambitions in Hungary over those of John Zapodia, and in return Maximilian promised to withdraw support from the Teutonic Knights in their conflict against Poland. Vladislav, for his part, agreed to a double marriage that would bind the Jagiellon dynasty closer to the Habsburgs, including the marriage of his son and heir, Louis, to Maximilian's granddaughter, Maria. The agreements would later help lead to four centuries of Habsburg rule in Hungary. My name is Karl Reilert and you've been listening to A History of Europe Key Battles. I hope you can join me for part two of two and the Battle of Mohach of 1526. Until next time, all the best and goodbye.